1: Hi there. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. I just finished speaking with Dr. Gordon Matthews from the Chinese University of Hong Kong about his new book, The World in Guangzhou, Africans and Other Foreigners in South China's Marketplace. It came out in 2017 with the University of Chicago Press. This book studies the lives of traders from developing countries, primarily from sub-Saharan Africa, who conduct business in the city of Guangzhou, which Gordon Matthews identifies as the primary node of manufacturing in the world. He provides multiple stories of the experiences of these merchants, their attempts to conduct business and live their lives in a foreign country as they grapple with cultural and religious differences, as well as the Chinese state, often without much or any knowledge of Chinese. It is a very readable book, and I hope that you enjoy hearing about it now in the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Laurie Dickmeyer. Today, we're talking with Gordon Matthews about his book, The World in Guangzhou, Africans and Other Foreigners in South China's Global Marketplace. Gordon, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. I wonder if you could begin by telling us about yourself. I am
0: an anthropologist primarily of Japan. But uh, I have been based in Hong Kong for the last 23 or 24 years. And being based in Hong Kong, I look around at what's going on. One thing that was going on rather vividly was Chunking Mansions, about which I wrote a book in uh, 2011. But it didn't stop in Chunking Mansions. I saw more and more of the traders I knew, the African and Indian and Pakistani traders I knew in Chunking Mansions, going to Guangzhou to South China to get goods manufactured and send them uh, back home. So I decided to follow them, and this book is a result of that. Uh, I'm going back now to Japan research and other kinds of research, but one of the great beauties of being an anthropologist is I can be a professional dilettante and do what seems interesting, and that's what I've been doing.
1: Uh, okay, great. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, when and where specifically you were conduct- conducting your field work in Guangzhou and how you carried it out? Uh, you also make a point in the beginning of your book to introduce the roles of two people who helped you with this research.
0: Yes. Um, this research was conducted in primarily in 2013-2014. When I had a, a fellowship to take a year off from my duties in Hong Kong and lived in Guangzhou for that period, but I did not do this alone. The book is uh, written by me, but I did the fieldwork with Linessa, Dan Lin, and Yang Yang. Yang Yang was an MPhil student, and she introduced me to this. And I spent uh, the year of 2012 before I formally began this project with her in Guangzhou. Then when I began this project, Dan Lynn was working on her PhD, and uh, she wanted to be involved too. So the fieldwork was a group project, and that worked very, very well because, for example, um, often older traders will talk to me rather readily about financial matters, but won't take these young women seriously. On the other hand, young traders are often very happy to talk to them, but they don't want to talk to me. So it, it worked out as a plus plus and uh, Yang Yang is now translating this book into Chinese and uh, Lanessa is off beginning her own job. So this has worked for all three of us. One point I should make is that I originally wrote this book, Gordon Matthews and Lanessa Dan Lin and Yang Yang. But my editor from Chicago called me up and said, well, no, you'd better put in with since you wrote the book. <laughs> my wife agreed with him. So it's with instead of and, but still, they are intensely involved in this book. I wrote it, but the three of us did the field work. We're all deeply involved here.
1: Mm. And uh, in your book, you talk about specific parts of Guangzhou. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about the places where you were focusing and the the kinds of people that you were interacting with?
0: Sure. Guangzhou is a huge place. Uh, You know, it's problem, I'm not sure, but the population has to be something rivaling New York City. There are African traders and other foreign traders in various pockets around Guangzhou, but primarily they're focused in two neighborhoods. These two neighborhoods are not very far from the central Guangzhou railway station. One is Shaobei, which, uh, you know, is the place to go to really see the, the whole Muslim population, a lot of the sub-Saharan African population. Then about two miles from Shao is another neighborhood, uh, Sanyanli, or as I call it in the book, Guangyanshi. And that's primarily a neighborhood of Nigerians, Nigerian Igbo. And both of these neighborhoods are central to Africans in Guangzhou. So I spent most of my time in these neighborhoods. They're slightly different though, because Shao is a little more legal um Guangyanxi, many of the people there have been overstayers, and so the police presence has been much greater. It's uh, rather tragic what's happened to that neighborhood, I think. Xiaobai is also a bit livelier at night, whereas Guanggyanxi, people empty out. But the point is that these two neighborhoods are where anybody who wants to study foreign traders, and particularly developing world traders in Guangzhou, will go.
1: Right. And you mentioned the term overstayers. So in this book, Uh, a major aspect that you're looking at is people who are overstaying their visas and they're in China um, illegally, essentially, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, And it used to be that they were not
0: tolerated, but you could live your life as an overstayer without too many problems if you were lucky. But beginning August 2013, the police cracked down rather intensely and were inspecting everyone. And you know the the problem is that if you're an overstayer and you're caught by the police, you're instantly snapped up off to jail, and nobody knows where you are. If you're lucky, you'll be deported relatively quickly, but you may be in jail a very long time and suffer rather greatly because Chinese jails are not five-star hotels. So this is the situation these overstayers are in. Um, why do they become overstayers? That's a very fascinating question. One reason is that it seems the Chinese government made it particularly difficult for Nigerian Igbo to renew their visas, making it quite expensive. A second reason is is a cultural one that, unlike many of the East Africans I know, the Nigerian Igbo often would think, well, I don't want to go home back to my, my village in Africa or back to Lagos unless I've really made it, unless I have something to show for my time in Africa. What that means is that they would stay in Guangzhou for year after year after year until they can make it until they make that killing in the market enabling them to go home. Some did that. Others were not able to, and simply remained as overstayers trying to do business as difficult as that was given their illegal status.
1: Right. Um, If I could, let's backtrack a little bit since you talk about that topic in chapter five. Uh, So why don't we proceed to chapter two, uh, which is about, Foreigners in Guangzhou, Guangzhou more broadly. Uh, so, here you provide, I believe, eight portraits of a number of foreigners of various types and nationalities and races and means, um, and you juxtapose those with each other. Could you tell us what kinds of things you learned by juxtaposing these peoples and by talking to so many different kinds of people?
0: Well, first, and and most obvious, I think all the listeners of of, uh, uh, this will understand, the experience of developing world traders is extraordinarily different from the experience of, for example, American or Canadian or European university graduates who go to Guangzhou to find themselves. It is a, a quite different world. Having said that, it isn't only on the basis of skin color or the color of your passport. I show one woman in here uh, from uh, Ethiopia who, in fact, is leading a remarkably middle-class life. I also show an older French man who is deeply poverty-stricken. He just can't make it. So it's not simply uh, a matter of developing world versus developed world in these experiences. A lot of it is individual, but having said that, it's an awful lot harder for the Nigerians and Kenyans that I know as compared to the Japanese and Americans. The eight portraits in here are all trying to show this and also giving a gender perspective of how it's somewhat different for women than for men. But the key point is everybody is trying to make it. They're trying to make a, a life for themselves that they weren't able to in their home countries. And Guangzhou is the place to do it. Guangzhou in the 21st century, as I mentioned at my start of the book, is very much like New York was in the early 20th century. That's the place where you go to reinvent your life. And all these people from all their different countries are trying to do this to their utmost uh, degree.
1: Right. Right. Uh, one point that I found really interesting in this chapter was that you talk about how people, foreigners, uh, access information in China and in Guangzhou, where obviously the main language is Chinese. Um, and perhaps a lot of these foreigners don't learn the language that fluently and therefore don't have access to the same kind of resources or information. So you identify rumor as a source of possible knowledge. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the role that rumor played in these people's lives?
0: Sure. And that's a, a very important point. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, when I did my research in Chunking Mansions in Hong Kong a few years ago, information was quite easy to get. People would pick up the local newspapers, they'd check online. If somebody was uh, stabbed in Chunking Mansions, everybody would know about it. In Guangzhou, it doesn't work that way. Partly it's, as you say, the language barrier, and very few traders that I know are able to speak uh, Cantonese or Mandarin, and nobody I know can read. So that's one factor, but it's also um, the fact that the Chinese government is quite stingy about information. Bluntly put, information is censored. So that some events will be prominently played in local media, other events like a traitor being uh, killed by police as apparently has happened, not being portrayed in the media at all. So it's very difficult to know what's going on, and in this situation, the only way you can really trust things is rumor, but rumor, of course, by definition, you (laughs) can't. The most vivid example of this that I saw was the August 2013 drug raid that the Chinese police uh, uh, conducted on a local hotel. And in the news, they said this raid was a great success. And, you know, 80 or 100 or 120 African drug dealers were arrested, which was an exaggeration. The Nigerians, on the other hand, were saying, well, no, there are two people killed three people killed, five people killed, seven people killed, all these different figures. And they would have uh, uh, photographs that, that were from WeChat showing these bodies on the ground. Now, who do you believe here at the end of the day? It's very difficult to know. And I don't know to this day what really happened, but you can't know with certainty what's going on. This is of extraordinary importance because if you're a trader, for example, you will base your behavior on how active the police are going to be, if you're an overstayer and are worried about police. And, you know, you've got to the rumors you get, you've got to evaluate what rumors are reliable and what rumors are not. The trader who is successful at this will much more likely is much more likely to be successful than a trader who believes things that shouldn't be believed.
1: Right. Uh, So let's turn now to chapter three, which uh, talks about African-Chinese relations more broadly. So uh, one of the reasons you focus on Africans is because, as you said, you've kind of followed them from your research in Hong Kong. They're also a very sizable population of foreigners in Guangzhou, about, as you say, 10 to 20,000. Uh, during the time of your research, yeah. um, but also due to their their skin color, to have a different kind of experience in Guangzhou. could you uh, perhaps discuss these uh, choices and how can we characterize the this group that you're looking at?
0: Okay, that's an important question, and the the caveat I always need to begin when I talk about this is there's really no such thing as African. Um, in, in an obvious, tangible way, because a uh, Somali is as different from a Nigerian as, in an Asian context, a Japanese might be from a Pakistani. Um, it's, it's very difficult to make this stereotype. When I speak of African, I am speaking broadly, though, of sub-Saharan Africans, those who are looked at in Guangzhou, given the label of African, That that's what we're looking at here. And so because this is the largest group of foreigners and the most conspicuous group of foreigners in Guangzhou, I do focus on them. But I don't only focus on them. I deal uh, with Arab traders as well, and peripherally with people from South Asia and various other countries too. Now, the biggest issue that comes up is the degree of racism that these traders experience in China. And online, uh, there is a remarkable degree of racism, as many scholars have written about on the ground a bit less so. And many Chinese merchants do come to get somewhat close to the African traders that they sell to. Still, the dominant complaint of many Africans is that, hey, uh, I can make a living in China, but I hate to live here. Uh, I can't really count anybody as my friend which I've heard on numerous occasions, partly because of language barriers, partly because of cultural barriers, all kinds of interesting barriers. For example, um, often to celebrate a business deal, the Chinese custom is to have a shot of liquor and smoke a cigarette. And, you know, my Muslim friends, my, my Muslim friends from East Africa will say, look, I can't have a shot of liquor. I don't want to smoke a cigarette. I don't do that kind of thing. So that's an obvious barrier in trade that goes on. Um. One dominant comment that many African traders make is that Chinese cheat. Now, in mm-hmm. fact, most Chinese traders don't. They try to get a little bit better bargain, but uh, they're, they're not obviously cheating. But enough cheating does goes o- go on to make this a, a very common trope. You can't do this research without hearing this trope. I should also say, moving ahead to what I write about later in the book, there are a number of romantic relationships that form between Particularly African male traders and uh, young chinese women, and that's quite remarkable that that should happen too, in a context where there is a significant degree of racial discrimination, but these relationships do form
1: right, and in this chapter, I want to pick up that idea that you have again about uh cheating being kind of a common issue with the Chinese or at least perceived to be a kind of issue and in this chapter, you break down the different kinds of business deception and cheating that there are, and the reasons that there is cheating, or perhaps in some cases, it's more about miscommunication. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about the nuances of, of this.
0: Well, first of all, it would be uh, completely incorrect to say that uh, Chinese merchants are, more, are less moral and more likely to cheat than Africans. That's not true at all. It's simply that the Africans as visitors to South China have fewer opportunities to be able to cheat. If you're an African trader, the only way you can cheat is to try to get your container sent in advance and then skip town and don't pay. But if you're on the Chinese side, there's all kinds of ways that you conceivably could cheat. You could be a middleman and pretend to be the manufacturer and skim all the money off the top. You could have a false website and get the payment and then vanish. Most common among ways to cheat or skim off profit, I should say, is when you're, if you're a Chinese manufacturer, you're asked to manufacture a good that the African side is requesting. Well, what you do is make a good that's maybe 85% as good as the original sample. And you skimp on the uh, materials, you skimp on the workmanship, so you can add more profit. What this means, of course, is the sample uh, is not adequately replicated in the manufactured goods, and that's a form of cheating. But this is rather common because it's so easy to get away with this. Another thing to say about cheating is some of the varieties by which it's done. Um, One reason why cheating takes place is the perception among many Chinese merchants that if somebody comes only once, go ahead and cheat them if you'll never see them again. If you're not going to have a long-term business relationship, go ahead and cheat. But probably the most common uh, miscalculation in terms of cheating is a cultural misunderstanding, namely that in bargaining... There's a common assumption among uh, a number of African traders that that you need to bargain to a really low price so that, for example, the Chinese uh, manufacturer of a certain phone will say, OK, I can give you this. I can give you a thousand units of this for 400 RMB each. And then the African will say, well, you know, I'm not going to take them unless you can make it 180 RMB. And then the Chinese uh, manufacturer will not say, look, I can't give this to you for anything less than 360. No, they'll say, okay, 180. And then manufacture what you'd expect to get for 180 RMB, which is garbage. The African gets these goods thinking, wow, I've made a killing. I've made a real profit here, only to find that the phones don't work worth a damn, or they work a little bit and then quickly break. The African trader will say, I've been cheated, but actually this is a business misunderstanding. The African side bargains too low, the Chinese side in turn doesn't set a bottom line, and so these accusations of cheating spring up, even though really it is more a matter of miscommunication.
1: Mm. All right, I think this leads in pretty well into the next chapter, chapter four, which is about low-end globalization. Uh, So in your book, you use this as a lens to look at uh, the traders from developing countries. So I would... Uh, like if you could explain what do you mean by low-end globalization, how does it work, and what is it essentially? Okay. Uh, when most
0: people in the developed world think of globalization in, in a business sense, they think of the multinational corporations, you know, the uh, the, the Google, the Starbucks, the uh, Samsung and so on, the corporations with their billions of dollars in budget and battalions of lawyers and advertising and so on. But that's not the way globalization works in most of the world, and particularly not in the developing world, where it's much more a matter of a few friends getting together and buying copy or knockoff goods in China, particularly, and sending them back home to be sold by street vendors it's a, a trade that is informal often involving relatively smaller amounts of money and also under the radar of the law that's what's most important about this to, just to remember it's a different form of globalization but it's essential you know you don't have a mcdonald's in in african cities no that doesn't really exist instead you've got this form of globalization traders sending back goods via container Uh, via air shipment, often a matter of a few kilos or a few pallets. Uh, And again, getting these under customs, often through bribery, into the hands of consumers eventually. One point I need to make here about low-end globalization is China is its center in its manufacturing. When global economic histories are written 100 years from now, China's chief contribution to the world economy in the 21st century will be, I predict, its manufacture of knockoffs and copies. Africa, for example, 10 years ago had almost no mobile phones. Now there's hundreds of millions of mobile phones, and these are knockoffs and copies. Now, I should emphasize here, knockoffs are copies of the design of a good, and copies are goods that actually have the original brand name on it. So copies are designed to look like the original completely. Knockoffs are designed only to look like the manufacturing uh, the design but not having the brand name. This is important because copies are completely illegal and customs can confiscate them. Copies uh, knockoffs on the other hand can't be confiscated unless the original company whether it's Apple or Samsung or whatever prosecutes. Then they can be confiscated, but that doesn't usually happen. My African trader friends estimate that probably 15 to 20% of the goods going out of Guangzhou to the developing world are copies proper with the brand name. Almost everything else is a knockoff, and China specializes in these knockoffs. What's their value? Well, the price might be 30, 40, 50% of the original. So that if I am, for example, a trader from uh, Nairobi and I want to bring phones back, far better to buy not iPhones in all their expensiveness, but rather Chinese knockoffs of iPhones, which will be 40 percent of the price of the original. That's what my customers can afford. And I've never met a, a trader who views this as immoral. Let me tell you one more story here because it's so important. One of my best uh, friends among these African traders. A Kenyan was talking with me to an audience of American business professors. And he mentioned casually that in the goods he sends back to Nairobi, yeah, there's a number of copy goods. And he said, Well, I send copy goods because if my customers bring them, that's what they want to be sent back. And that's what I'll do. And the American business professors were just shocked. They were saying, What's wrong with you? Are you engaged in human trafficking too? Are you engaged in drug dealing? And my friend was too polite to directly confront them. But he told me later, look, who's a more moral person, me or those Americans? I myself worked for an American company and my boss was having an affair with his wife, with another woman outside of his marriage. And his boss was drunk on the job all the time. I, as a Muslim, don't drink. I don't have affairs who is more moral, me or those Americans? And in his view, he was more moral. And the traders I know overwhelmingly would look at this as the case. They don't see knockoff, or for that matter, copy goods as an evil. Now, in the larger intellectual argument, are they evil? Yeah, one could certainly argue that they are. Apple, for example, has put a lot of energy and money into designing iPhones. (coughs) Excuse me. Certainly, for copy medicines, they kill people. Those are evil. But on the other hand, it is copy and knockoff goods that have brought globalization to much of the developing world through Chinese manufacture. And all in all, I view that as a net positive rather than a negative.
1: So you mentioned that uh, Guangzhou is the center of the manufacturing uh, for low end globalization. And in this chapter, you identify a couple of other nodes in this network. Uh, would you mind talking about a couple of those just to demonstrate other important places for uh, low-end globalization?
0: Sure. Um, when people think of China, off the top of their heads, they might think of Beijing and Shanghai, but those cities have very little to do with low-end globalization. It is Guangzhou, which is the center of South China, and South China, the Pearl River Delta, the center of manufacturing, that's really key here. The only other Chinese city that rivals Guangzhou is Yiwu, which is a city not far from Ningbo, uh, about a 17-hour bus ride from Guangzhou, that specializes in uh, small goods of various sorts. And, you know, a lot of money is in Yiwu as well as Guangzhou, but Guangzhou is still really the center. But as your question implies, there are other nodes of low-end globalization around the world. For example, uh, Bangkok. I went to Bangkok and Bangkok makes fabrics somewhat better quality than those in Guangzhou, but somewhat more expensive. Uh, that's where numbers of traders go if they have a somewhat higher end clientele that wants better fabrics. Another place is uh, Istanbul. And it, at the uh, Canton Trade Fair, the, uh, a Turkish representative was telling me that, you know, Turkey makes better quality knockoffs than China does, so these traders should come to Turkey. Well, who can say? Who knows? Another major center is in uh, Dubai, particularly the neighborhood of Deida And that may be the chief worldwide rival to Guangzhou, in the sense that many African traders would rather go to Dubai, which is relatively close, than fly all the way to Guangzhou. But the problem in Dubai is it doesn't manufacture things, so you're getting Chinese goods that are being sold by a, a a retailer or by a middleman. So the profit margin is less uh, big than that which you'll get in Guangzhou. Still, Dubai is a center and it has to be looked at. And then I also have traveled in Africa, uh, Nairobi particularly. And I spent a great deal of time in the Somali area of Nairobi, which is quite wonderful to, to be in and see where a lot of these goods are coming in to uh, uh, Africa and being bought. You know, I had somebody in this uh, this district tell me, look, you know, this, is, this place is like Wall Street on steroids. My <laughs> stall, which is the size of your kitchen table, sells for $200,000 in the open marketplace. There's so much money to be made here. Because Africans will all come to this neighborhood to do their selling, not only Kenyans, but people from all over Uh, East Africa. So it's a very, very big deal, and an awful lot of money is to be made here. One comment I might make about all this that I haven't made yet is, many Chinese assume that the Africans in Guangzhou, that these African traders are poor. No, they're not. Uh, Many of them make an income that is a magnitude or more higher than that of the per capita income of their home country. There's a lot of money in this business.
1: Right. If we can now, let's return to the issue of uh, overstaying in, in Guangzhou. That So your next chapter, chapter five, is legal, illegal in Guangzhou. And you talked about this a little bit already, but uh, let's dive into it a bit more about why do Africans overstay their visas? Um, and perhaps more on the second question, which you pose yourself. Um, how do overstayers survive? Uh, and pursue business while trying to evade the police.
0: Well, the best uh, analogy that an overstayer ever gave me, uh, he <laughs> told me that he felt like a an antelope on the Discovery Channel trying to drink water at an, at an African water hole. And the crocodiles are clustered around just waiting to grab this antelope and pull the antelope into the water and drown it and he was telling me he felt like an antelope in his daily life because at any moment the police could burst in, handcuff him, take him off to jail, and he's done. His business in China will be finished. He'll be in jail for a while and sent back home to Africa and uh, won't be able to come back for many years. So that's, that's the situation that somebody like him is in. Now, how do you survive? Um, it surprised me that I know some uh, Nigerian traders who have been in China for 10 years and have survived as overstayers. How do you do this? Well, not everywhere ask for a passport. For example, if you're traveling in China, don't take a train because you've got to show your passport there. Take a bus, the bus you don't need to. So I know some Nigerian traders who have been traveling all over China trading, and they're not instantly stopped. They can go on for year after year. Now, it's gotten a lot more difficult. It used to be that the neighborhood of Li of Guangxi was full of Nigerian traders. You go there now, and there are way, way fewer traders, not necessarily because so many have been deported, but because they're afraid to show their faces because there's so many police around. So, you know, one trader recently was complaining to me, one Nigerian trader, that he's stuck in his apartment. All he can do is get on the phone because he's afraid to leave for fear that the police are going to pick him up. There has been this crackdown. The uh, Nigerians, I know, very often complain about why the Chinese are picking on them. And they have a good point. It's apparently a lot easier to be a Chinese in Nigeria than it is to be a Nigerian in China in terms of of, uh, visa restrictions. On the other hand, you know, as I tell my Nigerian friends, every country in the world is more or less intolerant of illegal immigrants in its midst. And that's just the way the world tends to work. Some of the overstayers I know took the bull by the horns and actually went into police and said, look, um... I've been an overstayer. Now it's time for me to go home. Here's my, the, pass, the temporary passport I picked up from the, the consulate. Let me go back now. And they're able to go back. Others are, again, sticking around to try to make that killing so that they can go home and uh, be greeted with pride when they go home. As one Nigerian trader was telling me, you know, I don't want to go home at my age. I'm in my early 30s and still be eating out of my father's hand. I have more pride than that. I mean, he wants to be able to make it before he goes back, but for an overstayer, it's hard to do. I earlier spoke of how many African traders make a good living. Overstayers are uh, very significantly disadvantaged, disadvantaged in this because you can't do many of the things that ordinary traders do. You can't have a bank account, for example. You can't travel by plane. You've got to be quite careful because the police could emerge from anywhere, and if they stop you and find you don't have a, uh, a valid visa, you're gone. You may be able to bribe the police if there's a lone policeman, but you can't count on that, certainly.
1: Right. And in your next chapter, logistics agents, middlemen, and cultural brokers, you talk about how some of these overstayers end up um, taking on some of these roles just because they're in uh, Guangzhou for a longer period of time. So I was hoping that you could discuss what logistics agents are, what middlemen are, and then. What kinds of roles do they play for newer traders coming into Guangzhou?
0: Okay, Um, one important point to make is there's very little advice to be given for African traders coming into Guangzhou. There's not very much Chinese infrastructure or advice at all. Uh, Basically, it seems the Chinese side has always assumed that a trader might come in for 15 days and then leave and not stay. But because there is so little help from the Chinese side, uh, logistics agents have basically become a form of cultural ambassador. So that if you fly into Guangzhou and you don't know where you can buy these goods, you don't know where there's a restaurant selling food of your home country. You don't know what to do when you feel sick and you don't want to have to negotiate a Chinese hospital. It is the logistics agents who take on these roles. Uh, The funniest story about a logistics agent I know is a guy who uh, I was getting a hotel room for the night and this logistics agent from East Africa came and joined me and said, I need a hotel room tonight, too. (laughs) And I said, why? And he said, well, one of my customers is staying with me in my apartment and he's sleeping in my bed. I can't kick him out of my bed. He's my customer. These logistics agents really do play a role up to giving their very own beds to their customers. They need to do this financially. That's what they're up to. Now, logistics agents play the role of simply getting the goods their customers have bought sent back to Africa. This is most often done by container, and the vast majority of goods coming out of Guangzhou are sent back by container. If, though, they're valuable electronics, they may be sent back by air freight, but it's logistics agents who handle this business. Logistics agents also can serve as middlemen. Now, everybody wants to be the middleman because that's where the money comes in. You know, if you are a logistics agent and you see that uh, a customer comes in and says, well, you know, I want to buy uh, this kind of fabric, but I don't know where to get it. Well, you certainly will say, "Okay, I'll set up the factories for you and so on and the connections for you and give me five percent of the total sales. And and that's the, the role of the middleman. The Chinese side wants to be middlemen. The Africans want to be middlemen. Generally, the Africans win out because they have the cultural knowledge to do it. But again, this is truly the most lucrative role to play. Then the third role that these logistics agents play is that of cultural ambassador, because they're the ones who most often negotiate between the Chinese side and the African side. And again, I've been with logistics agents who will scold their fellow traders. Hey, you know, you really shouldn't do that. That's, this looks like cheating. Allah in the next world is going to make you pay for this if you do this, or I've, I've also know of a logistics agent who saw his Chinese trader at Chinese immigration um, get it jump ahead in line, and he took this trader aside and said, "Look." You've got to stand in line like everybody else. Be civilized. Behave properly here. That's the role of a cultural ambassador, and these guys do it. So logistics agents, normally that doesn't sound like a a very sexy role to play, hardly the kind of thing you'd want to devote a chapter in a book to, but in this case, it's important. They do play an essential role as not just a logistics agents, not just middlemen, but as cultural
1: ambassadors between their home country and China. Yeah, something I thought was interesting about that was when you asked them, do they see themselves as doing that, as being cultural brokers or cultural ambassadors? And it seemed like for the most part, they didn't, except for maybe one guy who talked his way through it and was like, yeah, I guess in the end, maybe that's what I'm doing.
0: Yes, absolutely. And partly this is modesty on their part. But more, it's just the way you make money. Um, You want to satisfy your customers. One interesting section of, of that chapter is when I had a, a Japanese accountant and a, a, an East African logistics agent get together for dinner, and the accountant and the logistics agent were talking, saying, we do the same thing for our customers, you know, and, and we have to go play golf with our customers in terms of the, uh, the accountant. You have to, to take your customers to the hospital and the immigration in terms of the logistics agent. You've got to be extraordinarily nice to these people because they are your customers. You do anything you can to make sure that they come to you rather than to the place around the corner stealing your business. That means serve as a cultural broker, do anything you can to make your customers feel happy. That's the role they have to play. So again, for many logistics agents, being a cultural broker is a matter of business sense rather than anything done through an altruistic goodness.
1: Hmm. Okay, let's turn to chapter seven, which is about religion in a foreign world. Uh, So for a lot of the businessmen that you look at, um, business, of course, plays a really central role, but a lot of these African traders are also Muslim, they're also Christian. So I was wondering whether you could talk to us about uh, why religion is so important for these traders, and how does it shape uh, their business practices and relations with Chinese the single
0: biggest surprise of this research was the extraordinary importance of religion in most traders' lives uh, I'd be speaking to uh, my Muslim friends, and you know when prayer time came about without a missing a beat, they would go off and pray and then come back and continue our conversation. The Christians uh, would often tell me things like uh." The real reason I'm here in China is not simply to do business, but to convert China to the gospel. I've heard that over and over and over again. There are both Muslims and Christians, and maybe half and half, I'm not sure of the demographic breakdown here. Both groups are are key. But there's a big difference because Islam is a little bit more accepted in a Chinese context. And Muslim African traders and Arab traders can go to the local mosque and pray side by side with Chinese Muslims. Christians, on the other hand, are not. There are a couple of above-ground Christian churches, but overwhelmingly most are underground. They are illegal churches. They're not being given the sanction of the Chinese state. I went to a Nigerian church for a year, and there was always this worry of the police perhaps waiting outside, waiting to pick up the overstayers in the church. Uh, At one time in the past, the police actually broke into the service, and, you know, deported the minister for a number of years. This is definitely something. And the reason they do this is because the minister, who is a very dear person, said very clearly, my role here in China is not simply to minister to my Nigerian congregation and my, East Af- my West African congregation. Instead, it is to bring China to Christ. And that's something that's unacceptable to the Chinese authorities, who still view Christianity as a foreign religion. So this ongoing tension definitely is here. Now, why is religion so important to many traders? Um, Remember, if you are in a foreign land, it's remarkably insecure. You don't know what's going on. You don't know when the police might stop you over this or that. You really don't. You need some sort of island of of certainty and security, and religion tends to provide that. Certainly prayer for Muslims, the five-time-a-day prayer, provides that. For Christians, more often, it's very activity, its various activities. The Nigerian church I went to had activities for traders five nights a week. It had a soccer team, it had several prayer meetings, it had gospel readings, all kinds of things, just to make sure that traders are on the straight and narrow. And as the minister explained to me, look, We provide this so that uh, an overstayer won't, in his desperation, fall into selling heroin or fall into 419s, the fake email messages that we get from time to time sent by uh, delinquent uh, Nigerian traders sometimes. You know, that's the, the whole purpose here, to keep these traders engaged in proper trade. And overwhelmingly, being an overstayer is not viewed as a bad thing. And in the church services I was in, you know, people would confess to being an overstayer. They would say, my passport is in God's hands, things like that. On the other hand, obviously, things like sex work, but even more, drug dealing are viewed as fundamentally wrong. And the churches play an important role in helping traders stick to the straight and narrow. So my own view of religion because of this research became far more positive. I think it's a very good thing in these traders' lives because life is so insecure in this strange uh, Chinese city. I might mention one more important point here, that one key factor of globalization is how easy it is to get from, say, Lagos, Nigeria to Guangzhou, China. It used to be 100 years ago that this was a journey that took many months. Now, hop on a plane, within 24 hours, you're in a strange new world without knowing what the hell is going on. That's what these traders uh,
1: have to deal with, and it's daunting. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, I was really struck by the level of support that uh, these churches gave to the African traders, and including in some cases raising funds to help uh, overstayers who had been caught by the police, Uh, to get them uh, out of jail and their fees paid and things like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. That's absolutely right. There's an enormous degree of support. And, um, you know, I am, like many uh, of the listeners to this, uh, not particularly religious. But being in this church in Guangzhou Sunday after Sunday, my appreciation for uh, what they offer really shot way up they are doing a real service and uh, the Chinese government might recognize this a little more because it really is the church that helps keep these African traders and particularly the overstayers on the straight and
1: narrow. Certainly. And in your final chapter, you talk about romance, love, marriage, and families. Uh, Then with the sub question, uh, Chinese Barack Obama. Uh, So let's talk about some of the issues there so um about romantic relationships between african men and chinese women primarily uh the many challenges that those relationships face and also the kinds of possibilities that people see and the challenges potentially for uh children resulting from these unions yeah
0: that's a, a key topic um It's often assumed by African traders that they are the ones being discriminated against in the society. But in China, that's not the case necessarily. Uh, Certainly, Guangzhou has millions of young Chinese and older Chinese, too, who do not have hukou. They do not have Guangzhou residence permits. So they, too, are outsiders in a sense. They can't send their children to school in Guangzhou without paying a a large subsidy. They're disadvantaged in various other ways. So for these uh, young women in particular, it makes a lot of sense to become involved with an African trader. You know, the African trader, let's say he's an overstayer. Uh, And I say he because probably 70 to 80 percent of Africans in Guangzhou are male, the ones who stay a long time. And these relationships overwhelmingly are the African man and the Chinese women. I'm not entirely sure why. This violates the rules of hypergamy that we often see. Nonetheless, this is what we see. In any case, it makes a lot of sense for both sides. The African trader will think, well, if I have a Chinese girlfriend, she can help a great deal in my contact with Chinese suppliers because she speaks Chinese. And the Chinese uh, uh, woman will say, if I have an African boyfriend, he can help a great deal with getting customers. So it's win-win. And if love grows from this, terrific. Now, um, these relationships often are extremely difficult, particularly if the man is an overstayer, because you can have a religious wedding, but these weddings aren't legally recognized. And so even if the man and the woman have several children, still the man is subject to being picked up by the police at a moment's notice and sent into jail and then sent home. No mercy will be given. And this happens quite a bit, apparently. You know, the story always being traded by African traders. is I saw my friend, uh, my friend's wife and children sobbing because they saw him up in jail, uh, locked away. They didn't see him personally, but he's up in jail being locked away and they'll never see him again. Yeah. These relationships also are difficult because you never know what the African man may be thinking. And the story told by many Chinese women is, you know, he said he was going back to his home country after being in Guangzhou for two years. He left me a phone number. He went back home. And then after three months, I hadn't heard from him. So I called the number and they said, nobody by that name lives here. Who are you talking about? So there's ample room for deception going on here. Um, It's hard, too, because if you do have children in these relationships, China does not recognize dual nationality. So is the child going to be Nigerian, for example, or Chinese? You've got to just choose one or the other. And that's a very, very difficult matter. So a number of the Chinese uh, de facto wives of these traders said that they wish they hadn't gotten married because it's so difficult. Having said that, I have seen some wonderfully good marriages, and I just hope they can continue. This leads to that larger question of, will we ever see a Chinese Barack Obama? And of course, I can't answer the question. And it's a little um, facetious, I suppose, for me to be asking it because I can't see into the future. But still, it's an important question because uh, unlike societies like the United States or Canada or Brazil that have a a more civic conception of of belonging, uh, Japan, Korea and China have a more ethnic conception of belonging. I think most Chinese say that China is for Chinese people, people of Chinese ethnicity, as well as the 56 minority nationalities. So foreigners don't really belong in China. Are these Africans in Guangzhou and all the other foreigners in Guangzhou changing this bit by bit, particularly the China-Africa babies that are being born? What is their role going to be in the future? There are several hundred babies, at least, there's no official count what's going to happen to them? That's a huge question. I can't answer that question now entirely, but uh, I, I certainly can say that it looks like for the time being, the African presence in Guangzhou is not going to grow and it probably will shrink. So for the time being, there indeed won't be a Chinese Barack Obama. As a Communist Party official told me, uh, rather humorously, the only way you'll ever see a Chinese Barack Obama is if a top Communist Party official has an African mistress. Well, who knows? That's unlikely to happen for the time being. Um, In the long term, though, I think inevitably China will not just be for Chinese, but for the world. If China continues to grow in affluence, you know, China, like the United States, like Canada, like Western Europe, will continue to be a magnet. And this will mean inevitably that more and more people will come to China. And this will mean a globalization of China and a multi-ethnic China. This might not happen in my lifetime. I'm 62 years old, so I don't got a whole lot of time left, presumably. But this probably will happen in the lifetimes of uh, many of the African traders I spoke to. That's what I look forward to.
1: Well, on that note, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, and we'll end with the traditional question for this podcast, which is uh what are you working on now? I have
0: written a couple of books on low end globalization, uh my Chunking Mansions book, and now this book uh on the world in Guangzhou. Now, um before I, I directly answer your question, I've had mm-hmm. a remarkably dilettante career in the sense that I have written or edited books about what makes life worth living in Japan and the United States about a Japanese word called Ikigai. I've written about the Japanese generation gap. I have written about Hong Kong identity. Um, I've written about happiness in a global sense and what it may mean in an edited book. I've written about consuming consumption in Hong Kong. Um, I've written about low end globalization. So I've done all kinds of different things and I've probably forgotten a couple of things, but, um, it was curious how writing about Chunking Mansions really did uh, reach a public audience that nothing I did earlier uh, reached. And I think that's just because so many people have stayed in Hong Kong's Chunking Mansions, so a lot of people bought that book. Um, this current book, The World in Guangzhou, I don't yet know where it's going. It probably won't be quite as successful as the Chunking Mansions book, but this is my kind of ethnographic research that I really haven't done a whole lot of in my career. This is the kind of research where I just go there, stay there a long time, write about what I found. I believe very strongly in the democratization of of anthropology. So I'm not writing in an elaborate theoretical sense. I'm writing for, you know, doctors, lawyers, all kinds of people who simply want to find out what goes on with these people. So mentions of Foucault and so on do take place in the notes, but uh, certainly not in the text of the book. I'm writing for this larger audience. Now, what about now? I've decided at this stage of my life to go to an entirely different topic, one that my first book was based on. I mentioned earlier that my very first book, written in 1996, was on what makes life worth living in Japan and the United States. Now I'm writing about life after death, senses of life after death in Japan, in China, and in the United States. And I'm now in Japan doing research, interviewing lots of people about what they think happens to them after they die. This is a totally different kind of research, and this involves the move away from collective religious belief to a much more personalized kind of belief. People make it up now as they're going along, you know, based on television programs and, you know, comics and all kinds of things. It's a fascinating topic of research, and, you know, one that is just as exciting in its own way as the world in Guangzhou was. But this... The ability to be able to do these kinds of research is really what makes my life worth living. It's so much fun to be an anthropologist and be able to explore these different topics that seem interesting. This might be my last book, but I may well come up with something else to do after this.
1: We'll see. Well, sounds great in any case. Uh, Gordon, thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and I'm sure our listeners will, too. Uh, bye-bye. Okay, Laurie, thanks for the interview. I appreciate it. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. Thank you so much and see you next time.